well, good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. It's good to see you all. Thanks for being here. I was talking with Lance Peterson this morning, who's a teacher, and he said he's very grateful for three-day weekend. I'm like, you've only been in school like a week and a half. He says it feels like 87 years. So, you know, times are tough. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it is kind of the unofficial end of summer, and we get back into routine, you know, at least those of us with kids in the home still. And so that's fun. Back to maybe some level of normalcy. But this week, Amy and I were talking, and uh, we were kind of having a fun conversation. We're talking about school, and the subject of yearbooks came up. Um, any, of, any of you guys, just curious, how many of you still have some of your yearbooks, like from high school? Any of you still have like junior high yearbooks? Yeah, elementary yearbooks? Okay, yeah, I still have a few. Some, some are minor scattered around my house. I uh, picked, looked at some last night, actually, but uh, it, some of them I think I may have lost just the casual of multiple moves in my 20s. You know, those things kind of happen. But yearbooks are fun, you know, to kind of take a look back and kind of see what the styles were and especially to see kind of how everyone looked. And, you know, I, does anybody want to take a look at some fun yearbook photos this morning? Sure. Okay. Well, I had some friends help me with this. Like this one, first one is just, yeah, just too cute right here. Does anybody know who that is? That would be Baby Garrett right there. Baby Garrett. What'd you say, Garrett, about second grade maybe? Is that right? Do we need to ask? Preschool. Oh, preschool. You're way off, man. You're way off. Garrett has no idea of what he, how old he was. Um, or here's this one right here. Tim Little Timmy. Right there, our piano player, look at that. I, Tim, that style right there, baby, like the, the, the shirt, button-down shirt with the, uh, the little, what was the brand of sweater was that? Do you remember, remember? It was the whatever's cheaper than Izod. Yeah, whatever cheaper than Izod was. I can't remember, that one's funny. Here's another one. <laughs> Blessings, what'd you say? Liz, there's Miss Elizabeth Pavey. Liz, how old were you there? <laughs> See, here's what you got to love about Liz. Liz is still on maternity leave, but I send her a text at home this week, and she has no idea the, the scope or the reference of any of this. And I'm like, just, hey, can you send me a couple of old photos of you and Garrett? And I'm like, within 10 minutes, I had them. Thank you, Liz, for just trusting me when you probably shouldn't. Um, I didn't get permission for this next one, but it is an amazing fact what you can find on the Internet. Does anybody know who that is? That'd be Mr. Steve Rogers, yeah. All the Des Moines, like most of the Des Moines yearbooks are online, you can find. I did not get his permission to show that, but uh, there it is. Here's another one. Anybody know who that is? That'd be my wife, Carrie Clark. She's about in, uh, I think, sixth grade there. It's <laughs> good stuff, right? And then uh, there's this one. <laughs> I like the verbal response on that one. Somebody's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That'd be Amy Becker right there. Amy, do you know how old you were there? I don't know, five. five yeah, there we go. And, uh, and what about at least one more right here? Yes. You know, I'm going to embarrass myself with that. That would be Brent in fourth grade. That was actually a picture I snapped from my fourth grade yearbook last night. So there you go. And then I thought, let's just see how Brent turns into Jaden between fourth and sixth grade. So <laughs> that would be sixth grade Brent. And of course, Amy looked at that when she said, that's still the smirk that you have today. <laughs> it's like, yeah, some things never change. 
everybody loves yearbooks, right? I mean, for some reason, except this nowadays, you know, what that stinks because you don't get them until after school's done. Who remembers the fun of getting your yearbook before school was out and then you walked around, teachers gave you every class to get your friends to sign the yearbook. This is Carrie's yearbook that I took a picture of last night that we had in the house and all the things that people would sign. And, and you, that was so exciting. Want to sign my yearbook? You just walk around. I mean, it was so exciting. And stay cool. Well, exactly. There were, there were all these things that you would say in somebody's yearbook. Now, in fact, you know, there's not surprising. There's an article on the web that says eight things you used to write in everyone's yearbook. And I thought I would put some of those on the board, like, you know, BFF and stay sweet and you're too cool to be forgotten, you know, and good luck with the boys and girls. And then I love that one on the top there. It's I'm the clown that came to town to write in your yearbook upside down. If you can't read upside down. Or you had this jerk that did this to your yearbook. Yes. I, I am, I am writing, I am writing this. <laughs> Isn't that, who, who did this? Do any of you guys admit to doing this? Oh, Tim, why does that not surprise me that you did it? Man, there's a lot of things. As Amy and I were talking about this this week, though, it was kind of funny because we thought, you know, one of the things you'd often see written in yearbooks, too, is things like this, you know, don't ever change. Oh, don't ever change. You know, and you think, oh, what a sweet thing. They love me. But is that really what we want? Is that a sentiment that we really want to be expressing to people, especially fourth grade Brent? No. <laughs> you don't want Pastor Brent as a fourth grader. It'd be, you know, terrible. A while back, I had a conversation with somebody, and they actually told me this. You've changed. Brent, you've changed. Now, when you hear me say that, how do you think they were telling me that? In a good way? No. Oh, no. No, not at all. Brent, you've changed. In fact, it was somebody who in the same breath was telling me why they were going to end the relationship that we were currently in. And it was like, okay, awesome. That sounds great. And I realized that the word change in a church setting creates all kinds of heartburn for people because it's like, what are we changing, you know? But you know, change is just an important part of life, right? And, and people smarter than me have said a lot of things about change. Like one guy says, change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. That's probably true, right? Or this, if you wanna make enemies, try to change something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But as I thought about this, as I thought about what this individual had told me, I thought, but isn't change supposed to be part of our process? Isn't it supposed to be part of learning and growing? And isn't it even something that we should desire for ourselves, for the good of those around us? Shouldn't, shouldn't change be something we pursue? The reality is just simply this though, whether we like it or not, we're changing all the time. We are changing all the time. And if you're not, what a shame. I mean, is there anything sadder to see than a man in his 50s that's still dressing like he's 14? I mean, that's, that's terrible. I mean, there's a reason I never got into the skinny jeans fade. I got slim jeans, but never skinny because I tried them on and it was not a pretty look, you know? In fact, nobody looks at that and goes, oh, how cute. You know, Carrie and I got married. I was 21 years old. I know, amazing, right? And in jest, I often tell people that I've been married to three different people. They're all named Carrie but they're at least three different people. And she could say the same thing about me. She's been married to at least three different guys named Brent. And we think about that, and why is that a bad thing? Isn't that a good thing? 
I mean, how weird would it be for 49-year-old Brent to still be parading around and treating, I know, 49, amazing, isn't it? I own it, own it, just own it. Parading around as if I was 21. Do you think Carrie wants to be married to 21-year-old Brent? My children might like 21-year-old Brent. He's probably a lot more fun and a lot less rules, but, you know. And yet, when it comes to spiritual growth and development, we kind of lump change in with that. Like all change is bad. Growth is detrimental as if when we came to follow Jesus in that moment, we had perfect knowledge. As if there was nothing else for us to know, nothing else for us to learn. It's like in that moment, boom, we had it all. We knew everything we needed to know about Jesus. But I didn't. Did you? I mean, when I came to follow Jesus, I'll just tell you, it's been a 49-year journey for me. What I know at 49 is not what I'll know at 52 or 58 or 88, God willing. And, you know, of course, we don't have all knowledge. And that's why in the New Testament, we find lots of passages that talk to us about transformation and change and how important that is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And we have it in our Bibles as the the second Corinthians. But look at what he wrote. He said, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Now, I kind of jumped us into the middle there and you're like, okay, what is he talking about? Yeah, that whole unveiled faces. He uses this to talk to them about the Old Testament and Exodus. And when Moses was encountering God and they had the tent of meeting, that something would happen to Moses and his face would like be radiant because he'd been in the presence of God and it scared the people. And so they would basically say, Moses, put a bag over your head because it scares us. And so he would. I mean, just weird to think about, right? And so what Paul is saying is that because of what Jesus has done, We don't have to cover our faces anymore. We don't have to be afraid. We can interact with God freely, and this is an amazing thing. And so because of Christ, what he's done, we can come face to face with God, our creator, no veil necessary. And when we do, Paul is telling us we won't walk away the same. When we, our finite selves, encounter the infinite, we can't be the same. It's a life-changing experience. But unfortunately, I think sometimes what we believe about that experience is it is a past experience, that I was changed then, and therefore I'm good now, that there's nothing else for me to do, that, you know, if, like if you grew up in a moment where it was like, say this prayer, and you, you are saved, and you follow Jesus, you can kind of walk away with this idea that that's everything, that's the end all, and really, it's not. It's just the start of a life-changing experience. And when Paul uses the word transformed, he's not talking about this one-and-done experience. In fact, if you look at the Greek word, you know, sometimes our English words don't do justice to what the writers of the New Testament were saying. But Paul uses this word, this Greek word, metamorpho. And what does that sound like to you, metamorpho? Anybody? Metamorphosis. What do we believe metamorphosis is? Change moving from one thing to another. We get the idea of like the caterpillar, right? That is changing and and comes out of the cocoon and it's now a beautiful butterfly. And so when Paul says we are changed, he's saying, yeah, we're changed in the present tense, but it's an ongoing thing. It's a, there's a continuous nature to this change. 
And he uses the words, he says, with ever-increasing glory. Ever-increasing, what does that tell us? It's that progressive nature of the change that should be occurring in our lives. But as I said, the problem for some of us and what was sometimes communicated to us that when you hear you're changed, you've changed, it implies that's a bad thing. Don't change. I liked you the way you are. And I call this the Toys R Us mentality. For those who are too young, Toys R Us was an incredible toy story back in the day that no longer exists. But they had Jeffrey the dinosaur spoke, or the uh, giraffe spokesman, and they had a slogan, which was, I don't want to grow up. I'm a toy. There you go. See? I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, and I think a lot of us come to faith with the Toys R Us mentality. I don't want to grow up. Somewhere along the way, we thought that, that we bought into this idea that it maybe wasn't necessary to change, just stay the same, or that maybe the other side of this is that the change would just be automatic, that it would be something that just happens to us. You know, you do a little religious thing here, you help a person across the street there, and then boom, whammo, blammo, you're changed. But what you find in the New Testament is not that idea at all. In fact, there's a challenge here. There's some tension that exists for us. Because if you look in the New Testament, whether you read Peter or Paul or James or John or the writer of Hebrews, take your pick. All of them talk about growth and transformation with a similar understanding that it's not done in a moment, but it is a continual process. I mean, here's some, here's some, some words that are used that I just picked up with like a brief Google search or a Bible search where it says, be built up, grow, move beyond, crave, add to your faith, continue in him. And this was just the ones I could fit on this slide. There are more that talk about being built up, changing, and growing. And it's not something that's reserved for just a select few. It's not just like this is something that says, Brent, you do this, or Amy, you guys work at a church. This is, this is for all of us. That this is something all of us should be about and pursuing. But we do have to acknowledge about this, as I said, is it's not an automatic thing. At least it's not for me. Is anybody just checking? Anybody found that growth and change and development is automatic? No, no. We all know that it's not. We all know that it, it takes time, and it's, and, 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 but it's easy for us, I think, when we think about this, to run to extremes when we think about transformation. What are the extremes? Well, I think one of the extremes is just simply this, laziness. It's hard work. Anybody else agree? Hard work? Oh, my gosh. Self-reflection. Anybody else just get sick of it sometimes? Yes. You lose your temper and you're like, the last thing you want to do is sit down and think about, why did I lose my yeah. temper? Or you have this moment where you doubt yourself and you're feeling very insecure and you, want, you don't want to th stop and think, well, why am I insecure? You don't want to do that, do you? You want to just, so I think we have to acknowledge that laziness can be part of it because it just takes effort. When writing to Timothy, the apostle Paul told him, he said this, he said, Timothy, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle for our hope is in the living God, who is the savior of all people and particularly of all believers. I mean, do you notice the words there? Work hard, continue to struggle. 
Now see, sometimes we come to faith in Christ and it's like you come to church and you hear these messages where it's like it's all easy at this point. Just do this one thing and everything else is fine. But you start reading the New Testament and you kind of get this idea. That is not the message that they kept giving out. That is not what they kept telling people. Otherwise, why would Paul say, work hard, Timothy, struggle? Because if we don't put any effort into it, if we don't try to connect with God and and experience the change that he wants to bring into our lives, we can be guaranteed not to experience any level of transformation. And I realize, again, this is a tension moment. Because then we say, well, then does that mean we're earning salvation from God? No. Well, what about grace? What about grace? Doesn't grace mean I don't have to put in any effort? That's not it at all. In fact, the great author and theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard once wrote this. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. There's a working together that happens here. There's a cooperation between us and God that begins to bring about this transformation in our lives. You see, our lives are full of junk. Maybe I'll just speak personally. My life is often full of junk and brokenness. And I realize that if I don't deal with that, if I don't contend with the things in my life, I'm probably definitely going to be missing out on the life that Jesus talks about, on the freedom that he offers, on the the forgiveness that he, if I keep holding on to this stuff, I will miss out on this. And this idea that Paul's talking about, a training in godliness, moves us beyond this idea that all Jesus came to do was just to save you so that you could go to heaven when you die. That is bad theology. That's not all that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do so much more. He came to bring freedom. He came to bring freedom from sin. He came to take your baggage and he came to heal the trauma and the hurts and the hangups in your life. He came to bring this healing. He came to bring himself to walk with us and speak to us and be with us and to give us life. And we miss out on that if we don't recognize the partnership that comes involved with this. I mean, Paul even uses these words, work hard and struggle. And we might could even use words like self-control and self-discipline. No, no, not that. No, anything but that. You see, we often want freedom at the expense of self-discipline. But without it, we very rarely find it. And that's what Paul is telling us here. That's the first extreme, though, I think, is just our laziness, just because it takes work. The other extreme, I think, is this, legalism. Obey the letter of the law, because that's easy, too, right? I mean, that's just as easy as as laziness, because that means I have a checklist. Went to church on Sunday morning. On Labor Day weekend, double check. (laughs) There you go. You know, I read my Bible five minutes today. If I did 30 minutes, double check. You know, I mean, we, we fall into this category. And I don't mean to diminish the spiritual practices because they're very important. They're very important for us to learn and grow in, in all this. But how we approach them can really influence the level of change we experience. You see, it's not strict adherence to some law that makes us godly. And see, and that's what Jesus talked about. That's what Paul talks about. Come next week, we're going to talk all about the law and how the, the first church wanted to really cling on to this, to find their holiness, to find their, their growing in Christ. And Paul's like, uh-uh, you, you're, you're doing the wrong thing here. But if it's not strict adherence to the law that makes us godly, what is it? It's putting ourselves in a posture of being with God. 
just allowing God to speak to us through our lives, through the Bible, through prayer, through other people, through whatever means he desires to speak to us. And it's this idea that we live with that says we believe that the living God continues to move among us. He continues to speak to us. We refuse to be sucked into this secular, flattened spirituality where the sacred is done away with, with uh, sec, uh, spiritualness is only what we can see and touch, and we say, no, God is bigger than this. God is greater than this. We desire that transcendence, we lean into it, and we say, God, speak to me. So we need to be aware of the legalism that may try to sneak in and say, well, just do these things and here's your growth taking place. It's not necessarily like that. But there's one other challenge too, I think, one other extreme we need to be aware of. And that's just simply this. I called it the lookalikes. Nice so I could get a nice alliteration there. Laziness, legalism, lookalikes. We might be tempted to make substitutes for true transformation. You know, one of the things I think for us, the biggest temptation here, busyness busyness fill your life with everything and that means of the busy you busier you are the better you're growing wrong 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 the problem is is we can have a tremendous amount of activity serve in many different areas in the church and in social organizations and still have zero spiritual growth there's an author named tim Kreider. i saw this quote this week he wrote a book called the busy trap and he said this, he says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. And don't we believe that? We equate meaning and worth to busyness. And so we substitute some of these false ideas of growth for, you know, what true growth is. There's one more danger, too. And this one's the one that just really hit me square between the eyes. Because as I was looking at social media this last week, I ran across a, uh, a tweet, or is it called an X now? I don't know. I can't keep up with it. <laughs> There's a professor at Western Theological Seminary. His name is Ch Chuck uh, DeGroat. And he, po he posted about working with pastors and specifically, but I thought, man, this doesn't just apply to pastors. And he talked about the pastors and the harm that, they're cause, that they can cause in churches. And here's the post. He said, when I work with pastors who are awakening to the harm they've caused, in almost every case, they, and then look at number two, were formed by formation by information cultures. Formation by information. Think about that for a moment. I sent that to Amy, and the next day she came into the office, and she said, I'm still thinking about that. That was, that was significant. Formation by information. What do you think that means? Knowledge. Knowledge. Yeah. yeah. We come into this system that is reinforced a million different ways that says knowledge is all you need. Learn all you can, get all the information you can, because that's how you will grow and change. Exactly. Now, I'll tell you, this one I hate, because anybody done strength finders before? In my top five, number four is what, Amy? Input. Input. I can't get enough information. I look for information everywhere, and I just... That's why when I prepare for sermons, if I'm not careful, I'll read a hundred commentaries. If I, and I, I mean, I just kind of have to get to a place and go, okay, enough's enough. 
because I could just, whoo, give me more. Love to read, love to listen to podcasts, all that thing. But all that does is feed this misconception that information equals transformation. But as Tim so aptly said, how's that working out for us? It simply is not true. And we, only, we, we don't even have to look beyond, beyond our culture, current cultural context to see just how this is not working out. We're great at sorting up information, storing up information, but we're terrible at getting it from our heads to our hearts or actually living out the information that we have. That's why one of my favorite things to hear people say is sometimes people will leave churches and they'll say, oh, well, why did you leave? And they'll say, well, I just want something deeper. Garbage. Our problem has never been we need deeper. The problem has always been taking the things we know and living them. Period. That's the problem. Don't worry about deeper until you deal with what you already know. (sighs) Sorry, did I? Brent comes out there a little bit. Sorry, just bring that back a little bit. You know, when we, what we used to call this is knowing a lot of things and not doing anything about it. What do we call that? Hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy to think we know everything and know how to do that. I read a story this week and this guy was talking about he was, he was at a party, at a, you know, and he'd started in the gardening. And he's talking about some guy about a gardening thing. And another guy comes up and he's like, well, let me tell you about gardening, you know. And he goes on to this whole thing. And then finally this guy's wife comes up and he, she, she's like, is he talking about gardening again? He's never even really planted one. He's just read several books. I mean, it's the, this is, if, if the other one is the Toys R Us, this is the I stayed in at a Holiday Inn Express one, right? I mean, this is the I know everything because I read a book on it. It's so ridiculous how many things we know and little we put into practice sometimes. There's a book that I was reading this week called Subterranean, Why the Future of the Church is Rootedness. And the author, Dan White Jr., says this. It says, the modern church has become a colossal information Pez dispenser. <laughs> For those that are too young, a Spaz dispenser is a little, I'm just kidding. We don't often see the need to evaluate our information delivery method because we believe the message is so good, so true. Our learning methods are generating legions of people stuffed to the gills with information, but who are ironically not affected by the information they carry. Wow, that's a little convicting. This book here was written in 2015, five years before the pandemic, and then he starts talking about asymptomatic viruses. And then I thought, no need to define that for us. We're fully understanding what asymptomatic carriers are. And then five years before the pandemic, this guy says, we are all asymptomatic carriers unaffected by the content we gobble up. Ouch. Let's move on. (laughs) That's heavy, isn't it? It really calls us to question, what are we doing with what we know? There's got to be something we're missing. And I think the thing we're missing is just spiritual formation. The practices that we can put into our lives, not legalistically, but to put us in a posture to be able to commune with Jesus and receive from him. I mean, Paul said it in that Corinthians passage we looked at earlier when he said this. He said, when we contemplate the Lord's glory. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about, right? We're contemplating the Lord's glory. Not real about contemplate. We know what that is. We think about. But the image here is not just, you know, it's kind of like looking at a mirror, but not just reflecting, but beholding, seeing, really seeing, 
not just looking and walking away, but what are we seeing? Well, it says God's glory, the Lord's glory. Well, glory, what in the world is that? If you look at the Hebrew word behind this, it's kavod, which means weighty or heavy, something that can't be ignored. It's like a person of prominence walking into a room and they have a security agent with them. When, you, when they walked into the room, you'd say, oh, that person has glory. They have weight behind them. It implies authority, and God's glory is his weightiness, his authority, his reputation, his brilliance, his wisdom, his power. It's all these things. It's looking into the face of God. And when we contemplate or when we have a clear image of God, who he really is, we will be changed. But the real question we have to come back to is, what is changing us? I mean, we've acknowledged we all change. We all should be changing. But, we're all, but what is it that's forming us? What is it that we're allowing to change us? What are we being changed into? What's shaping us, molding us? And I would just say that it's probably what we're spending the majority of our time with. We will look like that which we spend the most time with, period. It's just human nature. So if we you know, dedicate ourselves to a news channel, we're going to look like that news channel. If we dedicate ourselves to a political party, we're going to look like that political party. If we dedicate ourselves to social media, the algorithms will form you, just so you know. Reading this week, there's a book out by uh, Russell Moore. He used to be the head of the Ethics and Religious Council, Liberty Council for the Southern Baptist Convention. He was fired because he said some things some people didn't like. But he, talked to, he told a story in his new book, and he talked about how he was meeting with pastors, and they would say things like this. They would get up and they'd preach the Sermon on the Mount. You guys familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? It's where Jesus said things like, turn the other cheek and love your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. And these pastors would come up to Russell Moore and they would tell them that they, we would preach this, the Sermon on the Mount, and that after the sermon, somebody would come up to them and they'd say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And he said, what was alarming is that in most of these situations, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus, the response wouldn't be, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. The response would be, well, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's too weak. Hmm. I got an email yesterday, last night, as a matter of fact, and I, it said this. It said, early in life, our experiences and teachers are largely chosen for you, but as you get older, you have more choice about who and what shapes you. We are all being formed by something. The question is, by what? And I just want to make one other comment before I close. It's not just what's shaping you and it's what's forming you, but then what are you doing with it? You see, I think we're so individualized and we are so independent that we forget that community is so critical to our spiritual formation. We need others. We need others to speak to us, to talk to us. As we read books, as we listen to podcasts, as we go through these things, we need to digest the information together. You see, just like a house can't build itself without somebody coming along and doing something, and our children cannot grow up and develop on their own without the encouragement and education, we can't be changed into Christ's likeness without each other. That's why I think it bothers me when somebody says and looks at me and says, you've changed. Of course I've changed. Why haven't we all? Why haven't you? 
We need others in our lives. We need to push back against each other at times. We need to speak the truth in love. The Bible calls it this, iron sharpening iron. So I close with just a few questions. I love questions. This is actually from like seven years ago or something. I pulled up an old thing I'd done and I thought, okay. Staff and I got together and we came up with five things we thought that were critical. Five important questions we should probably be asking ourselves, not just alone, but in community. Who am I? It's an important question. What's holding me back? The things in our lives, the sin, the hang-ups that we may be dealing with. What is shaping my life? What am I giving voice to, to allow to shape and transform me? Where do I fit in? Where do I find a place? And then lastly, what do I need to do? That last one's kind of the most important one, isn't it? Because we can ask the first four questions, and if we just sit in that moment, we do nothing. And transformation doesn't occur. So, as our kids begin a new school year, you know, my desire is for my first grader to be ready for second grade when he gets to the end of the year, for my sixth grader to be ready for seventh grade, for hopefully four of mine to all graduate this year, yes, and be ready for the next level. If we, if we didn't see that happening, I would say something failed. So what about us? What's your desire for the next nine months? Where would you like, what would you like to see God do in and through you? And what will you do so that in May, when school's out, that you can look back in a positive way with a smile, look back and say, oh, I've changed. Let's pray.